0: Hello, and welcome to Skynet today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what's just clickbait headlines. This is our latest last week in AI episode in which you get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two researchers about what we think about this news. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. And we'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into these stories and give our take.
1: Hello, this is Daniel Bashir here with a weekly news summary. This week, we'll look at two stories on autonomous vehicles, a GPT-3 alternative, and Google search. We haven't heard many Apple car rumors over the past few months, but a recent story says the company has increased the number of self-driving cars and have the number of drivers licensed to drive those cars. As 9to5Mac reports, Apple now has 68 self-driving test cars and 76 drivers. In March, Apple was granted a patent for a night vision system that combines visible light, near-infrared, and long-wave infrared sensors that would allow the Apple car system to see three times farther at night than a human driver. Apple is reported to have discussed possible partnerships with a number of established car makers including Hyundai, Nissan, and BMW. Our next story from the Robot Report concerns a particular ride YouTuber JJ Ricks, The most prolific documenter of Waymo 1 Level 4 robot taxis took on May 3rd. When his robo-taxi needed to make a right turn onto a multi-lane main road, it found the right lane closed off by orange construction cones. The confused vehicle couldn't figure out what to do and called for roadside assistance. But before that assistance arrived, the robo-taxi pulled out onto the road, only to stop again blocking traffic. It took off again two more times before the roadside assistance employee could actually get in the car, take over, and complete the ride. The confused vehicle shows that there are still many challenges to getting self-driving vehicles to a usable state. If you've been following the GPT-3 saga, you know that you can only access it through OpenAI's API, which is currently only available to those whose requests for use are approved. A while ago, a number of AI researchers and engineers founded Eleuther AI, a group working on open-source AI technology. Among its first endeavors has been creating an open-sourced GPT-like language model called GPT-neo. The group uses Idle Compute on the TPU Research Cloud, a Google Cloud initiative that supports research projects with the expectation that the results of that research will be shared openly. This March, after months of research and training, the Eleuther AI team released two trained GPT-style language models that can be used for free with the Hugging Face Transformer platform. They don't perform nearly as well as the largest version of GPT-3 for some tasks, but prove to be a good free alternative. Finally, at its I.O. developer conference last Tuesday, Google announced a number of ways it is moving forward with AI. As Vox reports, two of the biggest announcements are in the realm of natural language processing and search. Lambda, which stands for Language Model for Dialog Applications, makes it easy for AI systems to have more conversational dialogue. Multitask Unified Model, or MUM, is an AI model that boosts understanding of human questions and improves search. Google aims to have AI systems take on more of the work humans usually do. Rather than having to use multiple queries to answer a series of questions, you could use one more sophisticated question. Google is looking at integrating Lambda into its search engine, voice assistant, and workspace. Mum, on the other hand, is designed to understand implicit comparisons in a search inquiry, like how to prepare for hiking two different mountains and provide the most appropriate answer. That's all for this week's news roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events. Thanks,
0: Daniel, and welcome back listeners. Now that you've had a summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a more laid-back discussion about this news by two AI researchers. I'm Dr. Sharon Joe, a graduating fourth-year PhD student in the Machine Learning Group, working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models and applying machine learning to medicine and climate. With me is my co-host.
2: Hi there, I'm Andre Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation and reinforcement learning. And uh, if you're a regular listener, this week might be a bit interesting because we're changing things up a bit, uh, unlike our usual kind of uh, process of just talking about a few different news stories. gonna try to uh, change it a bit by having sort of different flavors of stories every week and, you know, a bit of each thing. So we're going to talk about... AI news regarding research, AI news regarding applications of AI, and AI news that have to do more with sort of the societal impacts uh, slash ethics of AI. So hopefully it'll be fun to have a bit of each as opposed to sort of a random uh, selection every week. So uh, we're going to go ahead and start with uh, applications or uh, new AI research.
0: And to start things off, uh, an article from VentureBeat titled, GPT-3's Free Alternative GPT-NEO is Something to be Excited About. And so what is this GPT-NEO? So GPT-NEO is uh, a GPT-3-like model, so huge language model uh, that takes you know a lot of uh, resources to train, both money and time. Uh, and it was created by Eleuther AI, which is uh, a team that was trying to, you know, uh, Make or replicate GPT-3 in some sense and make it open source and accessible to everyone. And so they have succeeded in launching that. um, And the article basically details that, you know, it it has uh, actually. it has uh, approximately the same amount of parameters, uh, like billions of parameters, and it uh, it is out and open source, and you can use it. And what's cool is that the weights are released, <laughs> so um, you you don't actually need to expend a lot of that compute power anymore. And now we can, you know, be greener as we move forward in the AI community, and hopefully just tap that API
2: exactly and uh you know there is actually uh hugging face uh api which is a popular uh library for this sort of model so it's it's kind of very accessible to try this out the only limitation of course is you need the hardware to run it probably in some sort of uh cloud instance which is not cheap but otherwise in terms of code in terms of setting it up um it's um much much easier than it has been to do with scale of language model in the past now, I guess the limitation is that this is still uh, not huge it's it's what three billion parameters as opposed to uh g p t 170 a hundred and seventy billion or something, so it's uh, a little more limited, but at the same time on their metrics they show that uh you know it's performing pretty well, performing uh, not quite as well as gpt three, kind of across the board on, on the quad, quantitative metrics. It's not as successful, but it still is performing impressively. And then uh, qualitatively, you know, what, what got people so excited about gpt three was its ability to do really coherent, uh, well-thought-out completions. So, you know, I can tell you a story about scientists discovering a unicorn, And the neat thing is, in this VentureBeat article, they include that from um, GPT Neo, and it it does a pretty good job. Uh, So I think quantitatively, qualitatively, this is definitely a step towards GPT-type technology being uh, available to anyone, and not just OpenAI. And furthermore, this uh, group is already working on a larger scale. GPT uh, Neo X, which is more like GPT three. So, I think for anyone who has hoped that you know larger models would not just be proprietary to companies that develop them, this is a pretty good sign. And uh, before we go on, um, maybe uh, let me just uh, read you a bit of this unicorn story that GPT-3 generated. So as a prompt, and this is a prompt that uh, GPT-3 also had, uh, there was this text. In a shocking finding, scientists discovered a herd of unicorns living in a remote, previously unexplored valley in the Andes Mountains. Even more surprising to the researchers is the fact that unicorns spoke perfect English. So starting from there, GPT-Neo uh, completed it as follows. The only evidence was a single word, hello. The currents are very good listeners. So we learned to speak English from watching humans, said Dr. David Orme, chief executive of the Zoological Society of London in a press release. In fact, they also learned to speak Spanish from watching humans. They said hello to us in both languages. While the discovery is stunning in and of itself, the news gets even more mind-blowing when you consider that unicorns were there for thousands of years. They were living fossils, Orm said, which is a fancy way of saying that their origins have yet to be determined. And so on. So it's, um, you know, very um, grammatically correct, uh, thematically consistent, uh, you know, it's... Not obvious if you haven't seen this sort of thing before that is generated by AI. And it's very neat that, you know, now this sort of thing is open sourced. The only
0: thing I really, really want is for it to have, instead of saying the only evidence was a single word, hello, like the language element of unicorns, like actually knowing that unicorns, like it's the horn part, you know, that is, that is uh, mm-hmm. odd, you know, or that cues us in that it's a unicorn
2: that's true yeah yeah, yeah. as it is it just treated unicorns as an arbitrary animal
0: yeah and its specialty is that it can speak or learn human languages or something yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well on the topic of text uh the next article is about both text and speech and it's titled facebook wave to vec you learns to recognize speech from unlabeled data and uh this article is also from venturebeat uh and so basically facebook uh announced today that it had or recently that it had trained an ai model that could do speech recognition without supervision that is without telling you know telling it um uh that you know what this text what what this what this phrase actually was transcribed um and so that's a big step in uh, in the uh, unsupervised speech recognition space um, in terms of uh, its ability to learn that because this means that it could leverage a lot more data because a lot more data is not transcribed than is transcribed. There's a lot more speech data out there without transcriptions, um, so that's that's pretty exciting.
2: Yeah, I think uh, in particular this is cool because um, creating transcriptions of speech is pretty expensive, so you know. You've had ImageNet type data sets with millions of images for a while, but paying people to listen to audio and describe hours of it is uh, much more difficult or at least more costly and time consuming. So it's harder to scale. And most of these um, state of art models for languages like English use really, really huge data sets of, you know, thousands of hours, at least, if not more. And um, you know, not only is that very expensive to make, but also, unlike a lot of uh, other problems, there's not really many public data sets for speech recognition. There's a couple, but uh, even those are you know, pretty limited and much smaller than what these companies have um, internally. So, yeah, I think uh, even though you know, this, this still won't outperform up what we have uh, commercialized as a research project. It's, it's pretty impressive because it doesn't mean that for languages where you don't have huge data sets or for, you know, um, companies that want to build something that don't have these data sets, uh, this points to a new technique that can work really well while not requiring the same investment or the same initial uh, starting data. And I think it's just also very neat, <laughs> like this is not a problem where I've uh, been aware of unsupervised uh, learning. And in general, it seems like unintuitive, I suppose, that you can train a model to go from speech to text without having annotated speech with you know the corresponding text. So personally, I thought this was pretty neat.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and we looked at the paper. The architecture looks actually fairly simple um, using a GAN. You guys are familiar with that. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's um, it's not super complex, but hopefully will help with uh, ASR systems, uh, automatic speech recognition systems um, down the line, especially for, you know, I guess, startups uh, coming out um, that don't have as much data. And even for large companies that do have a lot of data, it could cut a lot of costs, too.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uh, I guess the other thing is we have seen in recent years that self-supervised learning um, has really proven to be incredibly powerful with things like GPT, where you can just throw data at it without having labels associated with the data. And that could also be the case here that, you know, since you have so much more not annotated, uh, speech data and, uh, associated, you know, unrelated text data, this could actually be the way towards better performance. Ultimately, if, if, uh, you know, this technique can be scaled and, you know, worked upon in a similar way to what has happened with language models.
0: Right. And, uh, Speaking of speech, I guess we're going to transition to our applications section of of this uh, conversation. And the next uh, article is titled "A Deepfake Dubs Could Help Translate Film and TV Without Losing an Actor's Original Performance." Uh, and this article is by The Verge. And so the AI startup Flawless uh, has come out with uh, several demos showing that it can do dubbing. And specifically, it actually doesn't do the speech. So, speech is still dubbed by another voice actor in another language, but they're able to do lip syncing with the mouth um, and uh, make it so that it looks like, you know, the dubber for, let's say, uh, Tom Cruise's new movie um, can speak over him, but then his lips still match, let's say, the Spanish or the German dub uh, so that's really cool and exciting. And we'll see where, where that goes. Again, this is using a GAN, so those who are following, this is a visual thing. Um, but of course, uh, the the article very much views it as, you know, yeah, deep fake dubs um for enabling uh this type of uh technology within entertainment. And I, I definitely can see it happening. Uh, it needs, you know, a a quality bump, I believe, but um I could see it happening in the future for sure. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was I was pretty impressed by this. Just looking at their demos, uh, I think it's already fairly, you know, um impressive and it's seems like something that, you know, is kind of a no-brainer that you'd want. Uh if you can do it with a reasonable amount of quality, it it would just improve the final product when localizing into different countries. And um yeah looking over videos, uh, I thought it was actually pretty good like uh, again, this only applies to the lips uh, it doesn't do the usual kind of deep fake of generating everything and so as a result, I think um being more focused on this one thing of how people speak uh it it already looks pretty realistic and pretty pretty good so um Yeah, this is an application of kind of AI technology entertainment that I wasn't uh, aware of until this article. But now that I've seen it, you know, I would not be surprised if it became very commonplace very soon. Right. Yeah. But on to another application of AI that uh, might be commonplace, maybe already is somewhat commonplace, but uh, also more on the kind of fun side not quite as uh, serious or, you know, uh, maybe high investment. We have this article called Quizzing Michelangelo AI from the Florentine.net. So this is a very local story. This isn't like any sort of industry-wide story. It's just something fun we found related to AI. And so the story here is that tech company, Querlo, approached the Museo dell'Opera Opera del Duomo with the idea of an artificial intelligence uh, Michelangelo. So basically, the idea is now you know museums had to invest in much more online presence, uh, going on virtual tours and stuff like that over the last year. And so that was kind of the idea here, is that if you go to the Duomo we- uh, Museum's website, there's going to be this uh, Michelangelo AI that will pop up in the bottom right corner of the screen. And this is pretty much just a chatbot. So um, the idea is you can ask it things about Michelangelo's life, um, about the museum, and and so on. Now, this is not the super advanced chatbot. It's it's mainly catered to specific questions. Uh, it can support up to like seven Thousand of them, but still, I think it's uh, it's pretty cute and, and kind of a fun thing and a, a nice way to show that not everything where I is high stakes. Sometimes you can just have something kind of uh, more on the fun side.
0: It's cool that uh, it's seeping into something like museums, which I feel like we think about museums as this, you know, like oh it's about old re- and ancient relics, and then there's something so knew about that and and of course of course modern art museums are very different and there's new stuff in them all the time but this is like i don't know a very like we we see it as bleeding edge technology and it's cool that it's like it's so integrated with it already um and adds like a very artistic flair to to a museum's website and, I, and interactive um aspect too
2: yeah, exactly. And uh it's it's interesting actually the article also says that uh, this was sort of uh, initially not what they wanted. So it, it says here Domo uh the according to Coelho founder and CEO of Francesco Rulli really initially did not accept the idea because it was too modern for them. But then when COVID nineteen struck, um they needed to to modernize and so now they, you know, accepted the idea to try and and modernize and uh, accept more kind of technology, which it sounds like we sort of more traditional or or more long lasting museums um, haven't done as much of. It's it's fun. I actually just went to the website and uh, started talking to it, to Michelangelo AI and uh, it's not too sophisticated or anything, but at the same time, it is sort of fun of, uh, you know, it, it tells you uh, what do you want to ask? And then you can say something simple like, when were you born? And it gives you a pretty detailed sort of life summary. Like I was born on Monday, March 6, 1475, four hours before sunrise at Compress, not from, from Arizona and Tuscany. So, uh, I don't know. This it's also makes me wonder if like, we could have chatbots to ask about Wikipedia stories or something to just query for information instead of just looking it up ourselves.
0: <laughs> I'm playing with it too. And it says, look at my self-portrait in my late Pieta. Do I look like a greedy and stingy person? (laughs) Uh, And then I I asked him, do you eat pizza? And he said, I had a spare and simple diet, often eating only a piece of bread. Uh, But when I lived in Rome, I had my brother send me from Florence cheese oil and other Tuscan products. I used to drink wine to get energy when I had to work hard. I did not have particularly refined taste. And then he sent me a picture of himself and said, do I look like a greedy <laughs> 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 Dude, a selfie is really probably the oldest selfie I've ever seen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's fun that it uh, also kind of carries on a conversation. So after I asked it, it, it also prompted me with, do you know what is one of the most beloved buildings in Florence, apart from the cathedral?
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it continues prompting you that's cool yeah
2: exactly very cool yeah and i think it sort of speaks to you know i think some art museums sometimes can be a little uh intimidating or or maybe less fun you know very very serious self-serious right and uh this this does sort of say or indicate that maybe it would be a nice idea to make the experience of appreciating art also more fun and interactive and, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. appeal to the kids that way, and so on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does does get uh, appealing to the kids or maybe AI researchers, God knows, or if there's a difference, I'm not sure.
2: Alrighty, so that's fun. You can look it up if you want to play around with that chatbot. And with that, we're going to move on to our last little segment, which is more discussing uh, not just applications, but sort of societal uh, implications of AI and, and uh, you know recent news stories that are more maybe serious uh, in some sense. Starting with uh, our first one, which is uh, not really a news story. It's a it's, uh, a uh, Medium post by Black LeMoyne about a history of ethical AI at Google. So it starts with saying that uh, this person has had the privilege of being at Google for six years now. And uh, this post uh, explains from this person's perspective how the Ethical AI team was created by one woman over the course of four years. And that one woman is uh, Margaret Mitchell. And um, yeah, this is uh, not an overly detailed, like a 10 minute read that basically traces the creation of um, the Ethical AI team and in particular sort of details the Impact that Margaret Mitchell and Timnit Gebru had had on it, and of course, the reason this is being written—if uh, you haven't been listening to a podcast, because we've discussed a lot—you uh, know, there's been a lot of news in the past year about first Timnit Gebru being fired from Google, and then Margaret Mitchell being fired just a few months ago, and now there's a lot of. Um, negative feelings and, and criticism and general ill will towards um, the ethical or Google, I should say, yeah, Google for um, basically firing with two people who really built up the ethical AI team and uh, seemingly not having a very good justification for it. So I found this to be an interesting read, sort of this uh, um, Summary that's really meant to give credit to Margaret Mitchell and Tim Najabru and, and kind of make their contributions very clear. Uh, partially because, of course, Google now will not be very cheerleader. You know, there'll be probably some history to, or some, some efforts to kind of paint over that history and move on. And uh, that's unfortunate. So it's good that uh, people still exist to be able to tell uh, of their contribution. Uh, What do you think about this one, Sharon?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really meaningful that all these people have come out to not only just support, but also, you know, write something like this and and actually put the effort in. Like there is a lot of effort in writing this uh, large blog post. Um, So I think it speaks to who um meg was as a person and just yeah how important she was uh for a lot of people at google um definitely a role model for aspiring managers Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you're if people who report to you or feel inspired by you this much uh it, it means something so i hope she knows that at least uh yeah and and yes to the yeah google will probably want to paint over it in some way they want to move on they want to say that they're still doing ethics but in their own way i i think it's a very different thing now um uh in in how everything has culminated um yeah
2: yeah yeah exactly and um this this post does conclude with um, kind of reflection on the state of a team now, and uh, it, it ends on a somewhat positive note. It says that hopefully, ethical AI may someday, someday again be as robust at Google as what it was. Uh, unfortunately, today we are bleeding minds because the best of the best no longer trust Google leadership to make right decisions. And I've had multiple conversations with other ethical AI researchers and engineers whether, about whether or not to quit. Uh, many have considered it. And then uh, it, it goes on to say that those who are staying are there to make sure that uh, all the work that um, Margaret and Mitchell did will not be for nothing. And then, yeah, so they're staying to be at, at Google to do the work, to build on... Uh, you know, Margaret Mitchell's legacy of having built up a team. And um, yeah, it says that hopefully the connections and expertise built over the past four years is sufficiently robust to weather this storm, which um, is, is, I think, a nice message to send at this point. You know, obviously, I think for many people, especially in ethical AI, this whole thing was, was Pretty shocking. I mean, it's really, you don't see these sorts of very high profile, you know, firings of of real leading experts in AI. And and so this was really a huge deal. And uh, it's nice to see that people are sort of looking forward as well and saying that, you know, we can rebuild and and keep going despite uh, what's happening.
0: Right, and uh, on the topic of you know ethics and um, just societal impact of AI, uh, our last article is from the Twitter blog titled "Sharing Learnings About Our Image Cropping Algorithm," and uh, this was in light of a lot of a a lot of uh, activity on Twitter about how the automatic cropping algorithm of images, so like you you post an image but it's too big. To look at, and Twitter automatically crops it, finds the best place to crop it with their AI algorithm, and uh, then has you has people look at that through the feed. But what people found was, you know, there's some controversy, right? Because it's like, oh, why would they always crop this person versus that person? And so Twitter actually did a study um, and found that uh, between men and women, there was an eight percent difference uh, of from a demographic parity in favor of women. Um, comparing black and white individuals, there was a 4%, a 4% difference um, in favor of white individuals. Um, and looking at comparisons between black and white women, there was a 7% difference in favor of white women. Uh, and finally, black and white men, there's a 2% difference in favor of white men. So there are clear leanings. Um, the percentages are, of course, small, but that's still that still in absolute terms does mean a decent amount of images on Twitter. Uh, and Twitter now uh, has launched uh, a feature that basically is just like saying, hey, we will uh, we will let you as a user control where to crop. Um, so you, you you can still decide um, and we won't necessarily force it to be one way or another. Uh, and I remember talking to someone and they said, why wasn't this the original thing? Like, why do we have to go in circles for this to be it? But I think it's that... It felt like it would be simpler if the user didn't have to see controls or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm glad Twitter Twitter uh, reacted uh, well to to the discussions on their platform and and did did some studies with data and um, have improved the experience.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think um, just about everyone that I've seen react to on on Twitter <laughs> about those blog posts. <laughs> Uh, likewise said that, you know, it's it's really commendable how they uh, approached this in terms of there was controversy about it. You know, at, at the time in uh, last October, people were posting, you know, basically experimenting and showing that in, under some conditions it would crop to show, uh, you know, a white person instead of Obama or, or things like that and um at that point, it was all very sort of um ad hoc it wasn't really a study per se, but they took those concerns uh, in mind and did this um proper study and then found results and and concluded and changed the service and I agree that you know probably they did that originally used this machine learning thing to make posting quicker to you know you know not not uh Force people to worry about cropping, to make sure that all the photos are of the same size, but um, yeah, it is commendable that they went back on a decision. And, you know, figured out that uh, in some cases it's good to just not have an algorithm make any decisions, or make the decisions and allow the person to be in control. Yeah, kind of like a, a feel-good story, really, for <laughs> AI and. Uh, you know, a good example of what a good ethical AI team within a company should be able to do. Right. Um, So nice way to uh, end this episode, I suppose, with with a pretty positive outcome.
0: Oh, yeah, we love that. (laughs) And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at scannettoday.com.
2: Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review if you like the show.
0: Be sure to tune in next week.
2: All right. Woo!